I'm Craig James, and this is Big Audacious Idea, the show about big thinking, as well as what we ask ourselves. We should be asking the greatest questions of the human experience. On the show, we investigate new technologies and space exploration, the future, new modes of leadership, and much, much more. We also aim to bring our listeners new insights, various perspectives, and hopefully a big picture kind of conversation such as this helps foster greater connection and understanding between us as humans. Welcome to the show. We all will die one day. When that moment arrives, will we know in our hearts that our life has been in service to others? This episode is deep and thoughtful, vulnerable and essential. It begs more questions than provides answers, but these are the kinds of questions we need to ask ourselves and each other. When we have opinions, are they based on knowledge or assumptions? Equality or lack thereof, what does that mean? Resources and riches, what are they? Who controls those resources? Who should? The idea of government is evolving and shifting. What should government be? as an entity. Davidian Pearl is a travel writer, a speaker, a thinker, and social eco-political activist. He has seen things around the world by having the courage to go there. He goes to places of friction, conflict, and or poverty. He goes there to get a real read on what's really going on. He's also a talented musician. Davidian, great to have you on the show. Nice to be here. Thanks so much, Craig. I attempted a preamble to tell our listeners a bit about you, but there's nothing like hearing it from you. Expand further and see if I was on target or off target with what I just said. I am a social activist and artist here in Cleveland, Ohio. I endeavor travel writing, international travel writing. I go into war-torn and predominantly dilapidated parts of the world to get a better understanding of certain social upheavals that may have gone on there. I've always been a writer, but didn't really endeavor journalism until several years ago when I, uh, you know, I, I turn on the news and I just could not get a good grasp on what the truth was from any side. And I had the resources available to go and, and seek my own stories to share with the world. I am also a musician. Uh, my band is Daddy Long Legs' Homegrown Revival, better known now as DLHR. And the work is very much the same, sociopolitical work, eco-political work. I look at life quite honestly and simply as one mantra that I tend to just live by. So that mantra is, you know, we have to die one day, may as well die in service to another. And so while I'm here with my time on this planet, I intend to do that with my every waking breath and whatever comes after my death, because I intend to leave whatever influences I can and impressions on this earth. Admirable. And you've got me thinking already. You know, when we think about either a shortened name or a nickname, it makes me think about how to take big things and make them digestible and understandable. And that simplification doesn't mean simplistic, but digestible. And I wonder, as soon as you explained your experiences and your background, I was touched by the fact that if things are bad, I have to go there and see it for myself and understand what's happening. Is there a fundamental key nugget that you have discovered when a place or a people are war-torn or there's conflict or poverty? Is there some element, if we ended this conversation right now, what it comes down to is blank starts that trend. 
have you discovered something? One thing that really hit me, and it was on my most recent travels into the Middle East just before COVID, is that Americans tend to have the strongest opinions about things of which they have no idea about. We will be so vehemently stanced on issues that we purely speculate on. And that is something that fundamentally needs to change because that is at the core of my work to get those listening or reading my material to just consider another angle. And we can't do that by having the obstacles of obstinance within our own psyche running amok. So that is one of the most fundamental things that has come to resonate with me. The other thing is that much of what we do, much of what, let's say, the world is experiencing is a direct result of global economic imperialism. That trail of power and abuse of power is beyond party lines, beyond presidential eras. It has been going on for decades upon decades upon decades. All members of Congress during those decades, all members of the Justice Department during those decades and so forth and so on. So, you know, my work in, for example, in El Salvador, you know, we hear these stories about gang-related violence and asylum seekers at Mexican border. Well, I take it a little further. Actually, I take it a lot further. I call that the Mexican border effect from gang-related violence, but that whole area was destabilized by our work with the Soviets in 1979, you know, Iran-Contra, and it led to the destabilization of the Civil War in El Salvador and so forth. My work in Haiti, you know, uh, we constantly engage and discuss Haiti. The names come to mind, a third world nation, a poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. Well, let's, you know, I beg, you know, I appeal to the conscience and your own common sense. Why would a superpower, and at the time the French was a superpower, obviously, still remain a superpower, but why would a superpower spend hundreds and hundreds of years on an island, spending all the resources of manpower and technology and transportation if there was nothing there, right? So they actually called it the Pearl of the Antilles because it was full of riches and full of resources. And then they just ripped it of that and then they decided to give it a name, okay? And that name is Third World. And that's what's happened with so many other nations because when you think about it, most of the resources that are used by the global superpowers, Russia, America, Europe, when you think about it, most of those resources do not come from those countries, right? I mean, 70% of the resources that America uses on a daily basis comes from Africa, Asia, South America. Well, what's so fascinating about this, and boy, there's a lot you packed into that. So to unpack that a little bit, and again, at risk of getting maybe too simplistic about this, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to very fundamental human motivations and behaviors. So one that you spoke to that I heard is this notion of assumption, uh, this assumption of I know better. I know how to run a restaurant because I had dinner at a restaurant. No, you don't know how to run a restaurant. And the audacity we use that word in our show, right? That has either a positive or negative connotation. This is the kind of thing that I think is a fundamental thing where we know better, I know best, I'm smarter, I'm better. And so I think there's a lot at work here and we're still discovering as humans how to be more objective and balanced and you gotta care to care. The other thing that I heard you saying here is this notion of too much or not enough and the concepts of abundance versus scarcity, and perhaps the subjectivity of those judgments. 
How do you value someone's quote unquote net worth? A volunteer who saves lives and makes no money, but someone's a billionaire, does that mean the billionaire is quote worth a billion times more than that other person? It makes no sense. So you've got my wheels turning and I wonder what your perspectives are on this concept of abundance versus scarcity. Very good question. And I wholeheartedly appreciate that question. What I was getting at with El Salvador and Haiti and so many other nations I've traveled to is a framework of colonialist mindset that has actually reached a culmination even to this day in 2020. What we're experiencing right now during this COVID crisis and this perfect storm of the pandemic with unemployment and what will soon become an economy that is in deeper tatters. You know, we hear the president say, you know, the economy is booming, da 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 da. Have you checked your stocks lately? Have you checked your 401k? Well, by and large, the majority of Americans do not have 401k or do not have stocks. And a significant portion of those that are directly affected by this pandemic don't realize that they have very good reason to protest on their own, regardless of what their stance is. I mean, we work 40 plus hours a week for 40 plus years of our life, but yet a pandemic strikes and we can't make it past one paycheck without lining up in a two mile line for food in the richest country in the world. 40% of the middle class cannot afford a sudden $400 emergency. 50% of American middle class cannot afford a $1,000 emergency. And so that in tandem with the persons of color, black and brown people that are on the front lines of the essential jobs as a result of systemic marginalization, economic marginalization since basically the outset of the nation, right, has, has placed that right alongside the middle class that should be clear enough for people to see that we are all under a certain omnipotent oppression that we can certainly protest together on. To think about this idea of marginalization versus the marginalized. Throughout history, there's a subject of the quote-unquote perceived or treated lesser. Once again, back to root cause, what's really going on here that we, as humans, marginalized in the first place. What's with that? Race is a social construct. First, we have to understand that fact, okay? Before the European proliferation of colonialism, race was never really a consideration outside of India and the caste system. People referred to themselves from the tribe they came from, their family clan, uh, their religious belief system, even their hunting grounds. But once colonialization swept the world. A ruling class is always a minority. So how do you keep people in check as a minority? You do that by creating class division and social disintegration, you know, within that class division. So one of the first things they did because of what soldiers and occupiers and conquerors typically do, they take women by force. And so of course there's young that are born that are mixed. They become the colored class, right? And with that, you have a separation where you can create a class of managers, taskmasters. Because of the contradiction, racism becomes a product of that social construct of race in the first place, right? You have the color, then you have the black population. So right there, you're dividing the people up, right, into these three racial bases. When you do not allow for that to be adequately redressed, adequately healed, and you keep sweeping it under the rug with this and that different policy to further marginalize them from learning, you know, from education, 
from economic empowerment and its relation to today. Things like the 13th Amendment that, well, slaves were freed, but there's a clause in the 13th Amendment to make the exception for prisoners. <laughs> so what did they do? They chumped up all these charges against black men, ripped them away from their families, and you got this widespread growth of fatherless homes, right? And that started in the late 1800s. It's still going on today, you know, with crime bill and this and that, and just the legislation, or let's say the interpretations of legislation to put black and brown people in the penitentiary at much higher numbers than non-black and brown people for the same crimes, upwards of 70 to 90%. Yeah, I'm hearing you saying, and you're helping me learn the things we encounter right now in society, it might be tempting to say it is what it is because of now. And maybe if we look back, we might look, quote unquote, as far as back, let's say, the 60s and the civil rights movement. But what we're talking about is a cause and effect over cause and effect over time that spirals either in a positive or a negative way. Seth Godin was on the, the show in our first season, and we talked about value. The topic was money, but the real meaning was what is this thing called value and how do humans transact it, share it? And he cited a book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years by David Graeber, I believe is the author. And it was what you were speaking to is that the, the beginnings of money and debt started with conquest and conquest was not a pleasant thing. And you come in and you take over a people and you kill them or you let them live if they are indebted to you. And he said, that's the root of money. And that's like, wow, what a powerful thing to look back thousands of years. So there's probably things happening in our DNA as a society that is deep, deep, deep into the history that we need to understand. Mind you, I'm just speaking in terms of the infiltration of Europe into the Western hemisphere. Now, during that process as well, and before that process, you had many Africans trapping and enslaving each other because they became commodities. To the Romans, the, the Greeks, you enslave people, they become a bargaining tool. They become commodities. So the, the commodity of people, the commodity of land grab or what it may be. The only difference is it just was not done ever before on this level. The actual slave trade was a big process, you know, from Europe to Africa to the Americas take you to sugarcane or you get your textiles to get it back to Europe and your rum back to Europe and on and on and on. I mean, millions, hundreds of millions just died alone in transit. By no means will I just say this is a European issue because that behavior was certainly in all regions of the earth. They just took it to a level that we will never see again, likely in the history of the world. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Tavidian, you know, you can't help but reflect on what's happening now, regardless of when a listener listens to this episode. There's been too many seismic things that have happened in the recent history. And so you used the term solution earlier, and I'd be 
interested in what solutions are possible. Like, you know, right now, are we tracking in the right direction or the wrong direction? It feels like we're taking steps back in a lot of ways. And if that's the case, how do we grow and heal and deal with these century old issues? I will say that I guess it's to a large degree relative. We're tracking in a very difficult and challenging direction. Yet at the same time, all of these things that are coming to the fore is forcing people to look unfortunately, at the tune of hundreds of thousands of deaths during COVID and at the tune of rampant police brutality that just has not stopped since the advent of police agencies as slave catchers. One of the things that a lot of folks, they see the smoke, but they don't recognize the cauldron from which that smoke is coming. And the cauldron, you know, you look at the disparities in the urban centers of America, you look at our own black on black crime, in America. You look at the police brutality in those urban centers of America. You look at the health disparities of black and brown people in America and the economic disparities. And it has in large part to do with our economic structure. What we have here is a recognition of a systemic collapse of economic empowerment in the cities. And we're starting to see it in the middle class as well. But I wanna focus on what we see today and the largest cries to action we have today, which is the murder of black and brown people in the United States and the atmosphere that made it so. When you have these wealth disparities where you have, as Jimmy Carter put it, the misery index, which is inflation plus unemployment. Inflation is skyrocketing, unemployment is increasing and you have a minimum wage that is $7.25 an hour, which when you put it up against inflation in history, in 1968, let me just say in 1968, it would have been comparable to making $10 an hour, that minimum wage. So we've actually gone backwards as inflation is increasing and billionaires are getting increasingly richer. People say, well, you shouldn't punish them for being hard workers. Well, they're not necessarily working any harder in fact, they're working lesser than their lowest paid workers that are getting taxed to 30, 33%. What it is, is under Reaganomics and the trickle up effect, they've just been given all of these breaks for decades, all these breaks of not paying taxes and just growing trillions of dollars. That has created a very significant polarized extreme in this wealth gap that has led to more and more health disparities, criminality even, and has led to an economy that people in the inner cities just can't really get out of. Yeah, you can try to go to school, but to just say, oh, well, you can go to college and this and that, da, da, da. well, you can't get into college if you've been left behind 12 years ago, 13 years ago, 10 years ago, and so forth. And if we go back to the militarization of the police and how they essentially rip black men out from the neighborhoods and communities since the late 1800s through the 13th Amendment in particular, at alarming numbers for crimes, you know, X amount of crack versus X amount of cocaine, for example, in the 80s, a black person would get 10 times the time in jail. And a lot of the, and many of these jails now are privatized. So there's actually a desire, an agenda to get more and more people into these jails because it's not just license plates anymore. It's actual Honda parts, car parts, furniture parts, tennis shoes. When you, when you put all this together, how do we empower the communities economically. And I think the big audacious idea 
is actually going back in time to the New Deal and the Works Progress Administration under FDR, where they had vocational initiatives and so forth to build parks, bridges, roads, courthouses, schools, hospitals, museums, city halls, swimming pools, sewers, and so forth. So if we can get on board with that, then I think we'll be on a good track to giving people a better quality of life and then therefore less criminality and less health care gaps and so forth. And start that spiral up. Again, I've heard it said, you either spiral up or you spiral down. Boy, you have me thinking about so many different things. I, I'm thinking about this concept of equity, abundance versus scarcity. Sometimes equal isn't fair. Fair isn't equal. I think it takes us thinking about, I think back to simplistic versus thoughtful. Oh, this will be some silver bullet. No, there's a deep thought necessary. And I think we have to define what scarcity, abundance, right, wrong, equal, not equal, what those even mean. And if we together think about solutions like you just raised, some history that might be constructive. And one thing we can do right now on this show is have the courage to have these kinds of discussions. And thanks to you for having the courage to open doors to topics that maybe we're afraid to go through. If you were to challenge folks to think or say or do or believe certain things to move us in the right direction, what would be your challenge? I met the Haiti ambassador when I was in Haiti once, and he opened my eyes to something. He told me that all of the embassies, consulates, and ambassadorships, the entire State Department runs on less than one half of a percent of the federal budget. I said, what? All of those logistics and operations, less than one half of a percent. I said, with that in mind, we can do anything. And then when you think about California, it would be the seventh largest economy in the world if it were its own country. Then you think like, okay, well, where would Ohio fall? Might be like the 28th largest economy or something like that. Rhode Island, where would that fall? Might be the 90th largest economy, you know, stronger than Honduras, stronger than Guatemala, places like that. So when you take 50 states and think about this for a second, 50 states, 50 countries with their, its own GDP, we're talking trillions of dollars. We can fix anything. Mm, mm. And if we get people working like FDR did with, you know, the New Deal and the Works Progress uh, Administration, Tennessee Valley Authority, got people working, got them in positions to be a stronger tax base, you know, at this day and age, if we create works programs all over the country and train people up to $25 an hour jobs, good, solid, unionized jobs, you got a significant tax base on top of that, and you have an increased quality of life, and therefore it will invariably positively impact society in crime and health, employment, and generational wealth. One question I have is, what impact do you strive to have on this world? How do you wish to have seen your work impact the earth? Thank you for asking the question, and I'm taking that as a question to me individually. I also will take the liberty to relate it to the show Big Audacious Idea and to our listeners. I think that if during this time in particular, we can make a fundamental path decision, and I borrow from Don Miguel Ruiz, who wrote The Four Agreements and tapped the great Toltecs and ancient wisdom, and in his book, Mastery of Love, there's two paths. We run in love or we run in fear, period. And fear exhibits itself so many ways that we don't see it as fear, but it is under there. And if we're constructive and compassionate and abundant, and we believe in altruism 
and goodness and progress and innovation. Deep down, these things can be rooted in love. So if we're to do anything during this time, you mentioned earlier, we have a chance to take a breath for a second. We do have an opportunity. I would never wish this, what's going on right now in the world on anybody. But I pray that we will take advantage of it. Not opportunistic, but take a moment to center and say, wait a second, hold the fort. What's going on here? What are we doing? <laughs> if maybe, if it's just possible, someone adopts a slightly different point of view with an open mind, we're doing something good. And then from there, we watch the spiral go in the right direction. That's my prayer and hope for us. Beautiful. And, you know, we cannot have 20th century and 19th century and 18th century and 17th century solutions to our 21st century problems. You know, 30% of Americans are at or near minimum wage in 2020. You can't help but boil over when everything else hits the fan simultaneously. So my prayer is that we tap into our deeper wisdom, regardless of our religious belief system, regardless of our political affiliation, tap into our deeper wisdom and do what we know to be right to make this world great again. Davidian, thanks so much for being on the show sharing your heart, your mind, your thoughts, your energy, and your wisdom with us. Thank you for ending it on this note. Very sobering and very heartfelt, but powerful and meaningful. I've been speaking with Davidian Pearl. I'm Craig James, and this is Big Audacious Idea. Thanks again. Thank you. Our reality of now, perspectives of fair or unfair, equitable or inequitable, are rooted in history. And I mean history meaning to the tune of thousands of years. To deal with the now, we need to look back, way back, and get honest with ourselves and each other. Generalization's not good enough. We need to think in terms of the whole, yet care about each individual within the whole. We need to be unafraid to look at our reality with a sober, balanced view, and to work together to make the world a better place. What impact can you have on the world? What is your work, your real work that you're meant to do? We can tap into our deeper wisdom and find out if we try, we can fix anything. You've been listening to Big Audacious Idea and I'm Craig James, your host. Let us know what you think about our chat with Davidian by tweeting me at cjamescastrat. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, well, please rate us when you can. And if you can, in your favorite app, it goes a long way. We appreciate it. Big Audacious Idea is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. To learn more, check out our podcasts at evergreenpodcasts.com. Big thanks to our production team, our producer and audio engineer, William Pritz, our production director, Bridget Coyne, and my co-executive producer, Michael D'Aloya. It's been a treat. Thanks for listening. Until next time, don't just think audacious, be audacious. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! 
Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.